0: Your Bibles open Uh, in the book of Jonah. We didn't read chapter one, but we are going to read it as we work our way through the passage this evening. Um, Corin leaned over to me at the end of the video and said, "Have you got anything left to say?" Um, And uh, hopefully, there will—you will see there is a lot more to the book of Jonah than meets the eye. And so, um, please keep Jonah chapter one open in front of you, and uh, we will be working our way through that this evening. So, so Jonah is possibly one of the most exciting stories in all of the Bible, and I think just that brief overview should have um, shown you something of that. It's short, it's intriguing from the word go, it's filled with unexpected twists and turns, and it concludes with some seemingly annoying loose ends. But for all of that, and I think possibly because of all of that, the story of Jonah is possibly one of the most misunderstood uh, historical accounts in all of the Bible. And, and so I've been praying with Shane and uh, Kyle that, that our time together over this next month will be a, a great help in coming to grips with the gospel according to Jonah. You see, interwoven into the details of this amazing story are various golden strands of the gospel strands of God's amazing grace, of God's relentless grace, and that's the the series title that we've chosen for the series, God's grace towards undeserving religious sinners on the one hand, people like Jonah, but also God's incredible grace to irreligious sinners like the people of Nineveh. And so the story of Jonah at its core is about the sovereignty of God in pursuing the lost, Uh, with the Good News of Salvation. And that's really the title for this evening's sermon, when the grace of God pursues us, showing us that everyone needs the gospel and no one is too religious or too irreligious to be outside of God's saving grace. And so I must warn you that this study in Jonah will at times, as the video indicated, be quite uncomfortable as we see ourselves in the mirror of God's word. But nevertheless, it's a safe place to be confronted with the sinfulness of our hearts because we will see throughout this study that the grace of God to us shines through in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So hopefully, from the introductory video, you've been able to see a little bit of who Jonah was, uh, when he lived, something about the historical context in which the story plays out. Uh, We were also introduced to something of the structure of the book, um, the overall theme, and how it's actually very much a book about our own hearts. And so now we are ready to start digging into the text this evening. So the story begins with God coming to Jonah to give Jonah a shocking instruction to, to arise and leave the borders and the safety of Israel and to take a journey of about 1,200 kilometers or 750 miles to the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the city of Nineveh. This was Israel's evil and terrifying arch enemy, and he has to go there and preach to them a message of imminent destruction. Now, humanly speaking, no matter how Jonah looked at it, there was no positive outcome for this instruction from God. Either the Ninevites would would see Jonah, uh, recognize him as a prophet from Israel, and they would kill him on the spot, or perhaps they would repent of their sin, and God would then relent from destroying them. And so, either way, for Jonah, it was a lose-lose situation. So. God wanted to destroy them. He could destroy them, but Jonah wasn't going to be the bearer of any message from God to those evil pagans. And so in the first three verses, we see that Jonah hears the word of the Lord. He understands the word of the Lord, but then he rebels and he runs away from the Lord of the word. Let's read verses 1 to 3. So Jonah gets this message from God and he, and he heads off to Tarshish. Now Tarshish was another pagan city. Actually the, the core industry of Tarshish was to manufacture idols for the then known world. It was on the opposite end of the world, about 4,000 kilometers in the opposite direction to, to Nineveh. And verse 3 is clear, twice that in his disobedient rebellion, Jonah was attempting to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now besides just jumping straight into this fast-paced story, verse 1 to 3 have actually got quite a lot to teach us about the whole topic of guidance. Don't you often wish that God would just speak to you directly and just tell you what his will is for your life? Well, Jonah would certainly disagree. He heard God speaking to him clearly, directly, and Jonah didn't like God's will for his life, and so he then flees in the opposite direction. And so I want us to think a little bit about this topic of guidance tonight. I think too often we as Christians tend to mystify and and spiritualize uh, God's guidance in a way which is contrary to the Scriptures. How often do we not speak in terms of open doors? I've mentioned this before. You know what I mean when, when we say things like, I'm just waiting for God to open the door for me to do this or that. Or perhaps you've said something like, I was seeking God's will for my life and he opened the door to this or that circumstance. And so I knew in my heart of hearts that this was God's will for my life. Have you ever spoken like that? I know I have at many times in the past. Well, God's word tonight, I think, issues a a very serious caution to that kind of thinking regarding guidance. And so, in the first place, in our story of Jonah tonight, I want us to see the open doors of misguidance in verses 1 to 3. Here we see that Jonah has heard the word of the Lord, he's chosen to disobey the word of the Lord, and yet. As he runs off down to Joppa to flee from the presence of the Lord, what does he find in the harbor but an open door to Tarshish? There's a boat ready and waiting, and if that wasn't enough, there's space on board for him to to catch the boat, and the timing is perfect because the boat was about to leave. Let me ask you a question. Was it God's will for Jonah to go to Tarshish? Of course not. Was it God's plan to let Jonah get very far? Absolutely not. And yet we see that God did not stop Jonah on the road to Joppa as he did with Paul on the road to Damascus. God can do that, but he didn't. He did not even stop Jonah from getting onto the boat, and he did not stop the boat from setting sail into the big wide ocean. The open door of the Joppa Symphonia was nothing more than a test which Jonah failed. An open door of misguidance. Now I want you to understand what I am saying and what I'm not saying this evening. I'm not saying that God doesn't sometimes confirm His guidance in our lives through opening or closing certain doors of opportunity or circumstance. Of course He does. But, and and this is a, a big but, We can never base God's guidance in our lives on these open doors unless we have first committed ourselves to obey God's word. It's like playing a game of um, rock, paper, scissors. You all know rock, paper, scissors. Uh, Except in the matter of God's guidance, it's word, wisdom, circumstance. And in God's guidance, word always wins. In seeking God's guidance in our lives, we always start with God's Word. What has He commanded us to do? What has He forbidden? What biblical principles are governing our decision? And once we are clear on God's Word, then we consider God's wisdom. We we consider the counsel of other godly Christians. We reflect on the implications of the decision in the light of God's word. And then and only then are we ready to consider circumstances which may or may not confirm God's word and God's wisdom. Too many Christians have made wrong or, or very poor decisions on the claim that God opened the door. When in reality, they had not considered God's word and they had not sought out godly wisdom. In those situations, you can be sure, as in Jonah's case, that an open door is simply one of misguidance and nothing more. Now, linked to to this topic of guidance, particularly in our modern day and age, is this uh, emphasis on experience and feelings, Often we hear people say things like this regarding guidance. You know, God opened the door to this or that decision and I have such peace in my heart about it. It just feels right. Now whenever I hear that peace in my heart argument, or maybe I should say whenever I use the peace in my heart argument, I'm reminded of Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So again, I'm not saying that God doesn't grant peace to his children when we desire to make decisions which will glorify him with our lives. But if we go back to our analogy of rock, paper, scissors, there's one more in the process of guidance. It's word, wisdom, circumstance, and then peace. The peace of God will only be given by God at the end. Yes, peace is important, but it's lost in the process. When we have first obeyed the word of God, then sought out godly counsel and wisdom, then considered our circumstances, only then can we consider the peace of God in our hearts as a confirmation of the Lord's will. And so in the second place this evening, I want us to see another caution from God's word tonight, which is the deep sleep of a hard heart. In verses 4 to 6, here we see Jonah has rejected the word of the Lord. He's acted in a way which is totally contrary to godly wisdom, and he's followed this open door of misguidance. And now he heads down into the belly of the boat, and guess what? He has peace in his heart. Jonah falls into a deep sleep. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down, and was fast asleep. Now, there's a lot more going on in these, in these verses than just Jonah having a snooze. Let me highlight a few things. In verse 4, we see the sovereignty of God at work over the forces of nature. As God hurls this wind upon the sea, but also God's expressed purpose in confronting Jonah in his wayward attempt to run from the presence of the Lord. We are told that the Lord threw down a great wind on the sea so that a mighty storm arose to the point where the ship was about to break up. But we notice in the text that the ship didn't break up. God was in control of this big picture of hurling this massive storm onto the sea. But God was also at work in the minute details of keeping every nail in place so that the sides of the ship didn't just rip open and it sank. Now, these were were hardened, experienced sailors, and they were terrified. They knew how to read the weather. They knew that storms like this didn't just appear out of nowhere. They knew that some supernatural being was responsible for this storm. And so each one, we are told, cries out to his God. When nothing happens, they throw all the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. And through all of this, where was Jonah? Jonah was fast asleep in the depths of the ship, enjoying such peace. Now, normally speaking, uh, sleep is a a wonderful gift from God that he gives to us as his children. Usually, it's the fruit of, of the Spirit which rests and trusts in God and his provision for our lives, which helps us to sleep well at night. But this account shows us that we mustn't assume that a peaceful night's sleep is a confirmation of God's will for our lives. If we haven't first made sure that we are obeying the word of the Lord. What we see here is that this was a spiritual Case of Jonah's heart being hardened. His apparent peace in the storm actually reflected a hardness of heart. You see, when we set our hearts against God, when we begin to quench the the influence of the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our hearts begin to harden. Our consciences become seared and when we progress along that path for a week, for a month, for a year or longer, soon we find that our consciences no longer bother us. The rebellion of disobedience gets easier and easier. And before we know it, we are fast asleep in the apparent peace of our disobedience against God. Billy Graham used to say, The same sun that melts the butter also hardens the clay. That's what happens when we start to ignore or minimize the grace of God to us in the gospel. Now Jonah's experience here is not unique. It's not unique for me and I'm sure for you. We can all testify of how we've disobeyed God at various times in our lives and initially that disobedience really bothered us. Later on, as we continued in sin again and again, it became more tolerable. And before long, we were fast asleep while the storm of God's displeasure was raging around us. What we need today, if that is perhaps where you find yourself, is a solid wake-up call as Jonah got. Look at verse 6. So the captain came to Jonah and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Isn't this ironic? The only person on the boat who is a believer in the one true living God is fast asleep in the hardness of his heart. While all these pagan sailors who are idol worshippers of false gods are the only ones who are praying. And they come to Jonah to wake him up so that he can pray to his God. Don't we all need a wake-up call like Jonah? This wake-up call may come to us in in different ways in our lives. But in the end, it must be acknowledged that it's part of God's grace to us. For if God doesn't wake us up from our sinful slumber, we would certainly perish. Sometimes God's wake-up call comes through an injury. Perhaps a a medical emergency, a a shock diagnosis. Perhaps it comes through the destructive consequences of our own sinfulness. Sometimes it comes through a a tragic event which which strikes us or or someone very close to us. Whatever the means, God's wake-up call from the deep sleep of a hard heart is a sign of God's relentless grace in pursuing us. And so in the third place, I want us to see the painful grace of exposure in verses 7 to 10. And if we come to these verses, we need to keep in mind that God's greatest desire for his children is not our happiness, but our holiness. If God was primarily concerned for Jonah's happiness, he would never have sent him to Nineveh. He certainly would have just left him to slumber while he sailed across the Mediterranean Sea en route to his early retirement in the south of Spain. But God is committed to our holiness. And so it's time for for Jonah to experience God's grace of, of, or painful grace of exposure. Verse 7, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. When nothing was helping to cause the storm to abate, these men realized that someone on board must be responsible. And they were pagans, so they would have had a very polytheistic and syncretistic view of the supernatural world. In other words, lots of gods, polytheism and syncretism is the mixing and matching of different religious practices together. But in their ignorance, they knew more truth than Jonah was prepared to admit. You cannot run away from God. And so they cast lots. It's a system of drawing straws or throwing dice, or maybe they played the sailor version of rock, paper, scissors, whatever it is, they slowly eliminated the innocent party, and it narrowed them down to the one responsible for the disaster. And we read in verse 7 that the lot fell on a Jonah. Again, the, the fingerprints of God's sovereignty are all over the story. God threw down the violent storm to the point where they now cast lots to find out who's the guilty person, and God uses their means to identify Jonah. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God's relentless grace has pursued Jonah here and identified him in his sin. And we all know that when our sin gets exposed, it's a painful experience but we should thank God for that painful grace of exposure or else we would have perished in our sin. Well, no sooner has Jonah now been exposed and the questions start to fly. Look at verse eight. It's meant to be fast paced. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? Talk about being in the spotlight. Jonah thought that he could run from the presence of God, but now he has nowhere to hide from these angry interrogators. He's been found out. Now, some commentators believe that Jonah has already started to turn the corner here of spiritual recovery, um, but I'm not so sure. Let's look at verse 9 and see his response to these questions. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now what is interesting here in verse 9 is that Jonah answers all of their questions except one. By identifying himself as a Hebrew and a worshiper of Yahweh, he had answered their questions about his nationality, the country from which he comes, his religion. But Jonah evades one question. What is your occupation? He's been exposed here. He's identified himself as a Hebrew. He's a worshiper of the living God who made the, the sea and the land. And verse 10 even tells us that he admits to them that he was running away from this God. But he dodged the question of his occupation. You see, Jonah was still trying to run from God. He was still trying to avoid the call of God on his life to be a prophet, to be a spokesman for Yahweh. He was still running from the word of the Lord, and he was running from the Lord of the Word. And so, although he's been outwardly exposed, his heart was still far from right with God. And this often happens with Christians who are caught out in some sin, who may even have have come and and confessed the sin outwardly. They are exposed, They, they seem to acknowledge God with their lips, as Jonah did, and yet their hearts are still hard. In the deep recesses of their private secret thoughts and desires, they love their sin too much. And so they do not repent. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief only produces death. And I think too often we confuse the two. We see outwardly worldly grief. We see the outward grief of of having been exposed, perhaps the grief of the the consequence of our sins. But we do not often see a genuine godly sorrow, a hatred of sin which produces repentance, a a God-focused repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Jonah showed here the signs of worldly grief, He owned up to the fact that he was the problem. His sin was the cause of the mess they were in. But in his heart, there was no godly grief which produced true repentance. Not yet. You see, confessing your sin is not the same thing as repenting of your sin. Saying sorry does not mean that you are sorry. Don't let the devil confuse you about the two. And so in the fourth place, we see the desperation of disobedience. These next few verses show us just how hard Jonah's heart was to God. He had been exposed. He had confessed to be the cause of this terrible situation. And he even used some fairly holy-sounding lingo in the process. But as yet, he remained an unrepentant man. Look at verse 11. Then they said to him, "What shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us?" For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now here is where we see the true state of Jonah's heart. Because if he truly was overcome with with true godly grief which produces repentance, he would have said to the men, "It's simple." Turn the ship around. Take me back to Joppa so that I can go and do what God has called me to do. And the sea will quieten down. That's true repentance. But look at what Jonah says to them instead. Verse 12. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quieten down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, this response is the response of an unrepentant coward. This was not the response of bravery and nobility, as some people propose. This was the response of a heart so set against God that he would rather die in his sin than repent and turn back to God. Notice that Jonah was fully aware that the mess they were in was his fault, He owned it, he confessed it, but he did not repent of it. He did not humble himself under the mighty hand of God. He did not submit his life to the will of God. He was so determined to carve out his own path against God that he was willing to die in the process. Now here is another wonderful irony in the story because these pagan idol-worshipping sailors seem to have more of God's law, just God's common grace written on their hearts than Jonah does. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Amazingly, we see that even though they are terrified for their lives, they cannot bring themselves to take Jonah's life. This is an amazing irony of instruction. Here's Jonah the prophet, the prophet of God. He's willing to die in his disobedience while these pagan sailors will try everything in their power to save Jonah's life. There's another irony here. Jonah was in this mess because he refused to go and preach the gospel, the, the salvation message of God to the pagans in Nineveh. And yet here are a bunch of hardened pagans on a ship to Tarshish doing everything they can do to save Jonah. Well, despite their noble attempts to preserve Jonah's life, God was not finished with Jonah yet, for he had not yet repented. And so the storm got worse and worse. Verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord. Notice the name that Jonah said is the God that he worships, the Lord in all capitals in our Bible, is Yahweh. They now call out to Yahweh, not just to some generic God. They call out to Jonah's God, Oh, Yahweh. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Yahweh, have done as you pleased. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The sovereignty of God just shines so brightly in this passage. Just a few verses earlier, the sea was calm, and God throws down a violent storm. Now Jonah's body hits the water, and God recalls the storm. And the sea ceases from its raging, and the pagan sailors acknowledge, You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. This part of the story shows us the desperate wickedness of our own hearts, even as people who claim to fear the Lord. For if we continue to reject the word of the Lord in our lives, if we continue to run from the Lord of the word, We will become so hard in our disobedience and our stubbornness that in the end, if it was up to us, we would rather die in the desperation of our disobedience. You're going to have to come back next week to find out what happens next in the life of Jonah, to see if the depths of the sea can place him outside of the boundaries of God's relentless grace. But before I close, I want us to see that although God's grace in this section has been so evident to Jonah in sending him this wake-up call, exposing his sins so that he could repent, I would propose that the real objects of God's relentless grace in this chapter is not so much the prophet of God, but it is these pagan sailors And so in the final place tonight, we see the providence of saving grace. As soon as Jonah hits the water, the sea is calmed, just as Jonah said it would, because it was the God who made the sea who was behind the storm. But Jonah had also said something else back in verse 9 about his God, which was more important than him being the creator of the sea and the land. Jonah declared in verse 9 that Yahweh... Is the God of heaven. Now, this is significant because in the religious culture of the day, it was very much one of a thousand gods, and each god had power over some small aspect of creation. So you had the God of rain, you had the sun god, you had the God of the moon, you had the God of the harvest, you had the God of fertility. But here, Jonah declares his God to be the God of heaven, the heavens. And now this was a bold, this was an unambiguous claim that Jonah's God was above all the gods of the sailors, above all the gods of the pagan world. All the other gods were under the heavens, but Jonah's God was the God of the heavens who made all things, including the sea and the dry land. And so again, in this last verse, we see the sovereignty of God accomplishing his great plan of salvation. Jonah thought that he could run away from God so that the pagans in Nineveh would not be saved. That was his purpose. And here God overrules all things to accomplish the salvation of a bunch of pagan sailors on a ship to Tarshish. And all of that was done through Jonah's disobedience. Verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord And made vows most commentators agree that this is a summary of what happened when these men returned back to Joppa there would have been nothing left on the boat for them to offer a sacrifice so this couldn't be referring to what was going on on the ship we cannot know for sure but it's likely that they returned to Israel and went to find out more about the God of Jonah perhaps they even ended up in Jerusalem which is not too far from Joppa They were able to offer sacrifices to God at the temple and to make their vows to worship and serve him as the only true God. These men must have understood something of the grace of God in pursuing them. And also something of the concept of a substitutionary death which was required in order for them to live. And so as they came to the temple and inquired after God's, uh, the God of Jonah, they would have been told by the priests that you cannot approach this holy God without bringing a sacrifice to atone for your sins. You need to bring a perfect lamb, which needs to die in your place before you can come into the presence of Yahweh and make your vows to him. Little did these men know that their experience Of the relentless grace of God in pursuing them was already a foretaste of the ultimate grace of Yahweh in sending his own Son to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. That's where we end this evening with religious Jonah sinking into the depths of the sea in the hardness of his heart towards God while the previously irreligious pagan sailors are worshiping God with truly repentant hearts. Which one are you this evening as you look at yourself in the mirror of God's word? Let's pray. Hi, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful portion of your word. Lord, you a story that we know so well, but perhaps too well for our own good, in that we have not perhaps seen it as a mirror into our own souls as we ought. We come to you this evening, Lord, and already after chapter one, we recognize something of Jonah in our own hearts, perhaps different aspects of him. Perhaps we recognize something of those irreligious pagan sailors in our own hearts this morning, this evening. But we want to thank you that you are a God who pursues sinners, that you are relentless in pursuing us, until we come to repentance. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do the work that we saw you do here in Jonah's heart, the wake-up call, the exposing of our sins so that we might truly repent and be restored, and that we, as people who now live on this side of the cross, we would offer our lives as living sacrifices to you for your great salvation, that we would make our vows to you to love and serve you always. Won't you do this work in our hearts as only your word can? By your spirit we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.